Part 2 of Chapter 8 of The Abandoned Room This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading done by Jules Harlock of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. The Abandoned Room by Wadsworth Camp Chapter 8 Section 2 What Happened at the Grave Robinson threw back his shoulders. He turned to Rawlins with his old authority. The unimaginative detective had stood throughout, releasing no indication of his emotions. But as he raised his hand now to an unnecessary adjustment of his scarf pin, the fingers were not quite steady. Telephone this man, Waters, Robinson directed, then get in communication with the office and put him on that end. Rawlins walked away. Robinson apologized to Silas Blackburn with an uneasy voice. Got to check up what I can. Can't get anywhere with these things unless you make sure of your first facts. I dare say Waters' story will tally with yours. Blackburn nodded. Graham cleared his throat. Now perhaps we may ask that very important question. The day Mr. Blackburn called at your office in Smithtown, he told Howells he was afraid of being murdered. According to Howells, he said, My heart's all right. It won't stop yet a while unless it's made to. So if I'm found cold some fine morning, you can be sure I was put out of the way. I know, Robinson said, and that night Graham continued, when he went to the old room, he was terrified of something which he wouldn't define for Miss Perrine. He warned me not to mention he'd gone there, Catherine put in. He told me he was afraid, afraid to sleep in his own room any longer. Robinson turned. What about that, Mr. Blackburn? For a moment Bobby's curiosity overcame the confusion aroused by his grandfather's apparently occult return. All along they had craved the knowledge he was about to give them, the statement on which Bobby's life had seemed to depend. Blackburn, however, was unwilling. The question seemed to have returned to him something of his normal manner. No use, he mumbled, going into that. A good deal of use, Robinson insisted. Blackburn shifted his feet. He gazed at his pipe doubtfully. I don't see why. That didn't come, and it seems it wasn't what I ought to have been afraid of, after all. All along I ought to have been afraid only of the cedars and the old room. I've been accused of being unjust. I don't want to do an injustice now. Please answer. Robinson said impatiently. You must answer, Graham urged. I don't see that it makes the slightest difference, Paredes drawled. What has it got to do with the case as it stands tonight? Robinson snapped at him. You keep out of it. Don't forget there's a lot you haven't answered yet. Silas Blackburn looked straight at Bobby. Slowly he raised his hand, pointing an accusing finger at his grandson. If you want to know, I was afraid of that young rascal. Q. 
Catherine started impulsively forward in an effort to stop him. Blackburn waved her away. You trying to scare me, Katie? He asked suspiciously. Evidently, Robinson commented to Graham, Howells wasn't as dull as we thought him. Go on, Mr. Blackburn. Why were you afraid of your grandson? Maybe he can tell you better than I can, the old man answered. Don't see any use raking up such things anyway. Maybe I'd been pretty harsh with him. Anyway, I knew he hated the ground I walked on and would be glad enough to see me drop in my tracks. That isn't so, Bobby said. You keep quiet now. You've always talked too much. So the old feeling survived. Go on, Robinson urged. I'd always been a hard worker, Blackburn whined, and he was a waster. Naturally, we didn't get along. I decided to make a new will, leaving my money to the Bedford Foundation, and I wrote him that, thinking it would bring him hot foot to make it up with me. I'd been nervous about him before, because I didn't know what might come into his head when he was on these wild parties, so I'd spoken to Howells, thinking I'd trip him if he tried any funny business. When he didn't come that night, I got scared. He knew I wouldn't make the new will until morning, and since I couldn't see any man throwing all that money away, I figured he'd guess he couldn't turn me and wouldn't waste any time talking. When you got a lot of money and a grandson who hates you, you have to think of such things. Suppose, I thought, he should come out here drunk when I was sound asleep. I knew he had a latch key and he might sneak up to my room before I could even get to the telephone. Or I was afraid he might hire somebody. You can buy men for that sort of work in New York. I tell you, the more I thought of it, the more I was sure he'd do something. You'd understand if you'd lived in this lonely place with all that money and nobody you wanted to will it to. I nearly sent for Howells right then, but if nothing had happened, I'd have looked a fool. I wanted you to send for a man, Catherine cried. Bobby leaned against the wall, repeating to himself the words of Maria's note, which accused him of having made the very threat his grandfather had feared. So... Blackburn rambled on. I decided I wouldn't sleep in my room that night, and I picked out the least likely place for anybody to find me. I was more afraid of him than I was of the old room. But, as I've told you, your room made me forget Master Robert. Robinson stepped to Bobby's side. All along, Howells was right. Tell me what you did with that evidence. Bobby turned away. Catherine tried to laugh. Graham beckoned to Robinson. What's the use of bothering with evidence against a suspected murderer when the murdered man stands talking to you? Robinson frowned helplessly. Paredes sprang to his feet. You're taking too much for granted, Graham. There was a murder. Blackburn was killed. We've as many witnesses to that fact as we have that he's come back. This man who talks with us, accusing Bobby, may not stay. Have you thought of that? I have noticed something that makes me think it possible. I have been afraid to speak of it, 
but it makes me hesitate to say that this man is alive as we understand life we have to learn the nature of the forces we are dealing with exactly how dangerous they are they started at the sharp rap on the front door now who the old man whined i wish you wouldn't look at me so it makes me feel queer you're all crazy it's probably dr groom bobby said and stepped to the door opening it it was groom the huge man walked in struggling out of his coat at first the others screened silas blackburn from him but he acknowledged their strained attitudes the excitement that still animated paredes face what's the matter with you he asked found something mr district attorney robinson moved to one side jerking his thumb at silas blackburn the coat and hat slipped from dr groom's hand his mouth opened his great body crept slowly back until the shoulders rested against the wall he placed the palms of his hands against the wall as if to push it away in order to assure further retreat always the little infused eyes remained fixed on the man who had been his friend such terror was chiefly arresting because of the great figure conquered by it blackburn thrust his pipe in his mouth he laughed shakily that fellow groom will have a stroke the doctor's greeting had the difficult quality of a masculine sob silas blackburn who do you think the other whined you're going to try to frighten me out of my skin too these people are trying to say i've been lying dead in the old room hope you'd have enough sense to set them right and tell me what it's all about the doctor straightened you did lie dead in the old room his harsh amazed tones held an unqualified conviction i saw you there i helped the coroner make the examination you had been dead for many hours and i saw you bolted in your coffin i saw you buried in the graveyard you'd let go to pieces the others had as far as possible recovered from the first shock had done their best to fathom the mystery but groom's fear increased his reddish eyes grew always more alarmed silas blackburn turned with a quick frightened gesture facing the fire paredes drew a deep breath now you'll see he said dr groom shrank against the wall again after a moment with the motions of one drawn by an outside will he approached the figure at the fireplace then bobby saw and he heard katherine's choked scream for now that his grandfather's back was turned there was plainly visible on the white of the collar near the base of the brain a scarlet stain and the hair above it was matted that's what i meant paredes whispered graham moved back good god robinson stared the fear had found him too dr groom touched blackburn's shoulder tentatively what's the matter with the back of your neck blackburn drew fearfully away he raised his hand and fumbled at the top of his collar he held his fingers to the firelight why he said blankly i've been bleeding back there to an extent the doctor controlled himself sit down here silas blackburn he said 
I want to get the lamplight on your head. I ain't badly hurt, Blackburn whined. I don't know, the doctor answered. Heaven knows. Blackburn sat down. The light shone full on the stained collar and the dark patch of hair at the base of the brain. Dr. Groom examined the wound minutely. He straightened. He spoke unsteadily. It is a healed wound. It was made by something sharp. Robinson thrust his hands in his pockets. You're getting beyond my depths, doctor. Bring him up to the old bedroom. I want him to see that pillow. But Blackburn cowered in his chair. I won't go to that room again. They don't want me there. I'll have work started in the cemetery tomorrow. Mr. Blackburn, Robinson said, the man we buried in the cemetery today, the man these members of your family identify as yourself, died of such a wound as the doctor says has healed in your head. Blackburn cowered farther in his chair. You're making fun of me, he whimpered. You're trying to scare an old man. No, Robinson said. How was that wound made? The crouched figure wagged its head from side to side. I don't know. Nothing's touched me there. I remember I had a headache when I woke up. Why doesn't Groom tell me why I slept so long? I only know, Groom rumbled, that the wound I examined upstairs must have caused instant death. Paredes whispered to him. The doctor nodded reluctantly. What do you mean? Blackburn cried. You trying to tell me I can't stay with you? He pointed to Paredes. That's what he said, that I might have to go back. But I never heard of such a thing. I'm all right. My neck doesn't hurt. I'm alive. I tell you, I'm alive. I'll teach you. Rawlins returned from the telephone. His story's straight, he said in a crisp manner. I've been talking to Waters himself. Says Mr. Blackburn turned up about 3.30, looking queer and acting queer. Wouldn't shake hands, just as he says. He went to the spare room and slept practically all the time until this afternoon. No food. Waters couldn't rouse him. Mr. Blackburn wouldn't answer at all or else seemed half asleep. He made up his mind to call in a doctor this afternoon. Then Mr. Blackburn seemed all right again and started home. Robinson gazed at the fire. What's to be done now, sir? Rawlins asked. Find the answer if we can, Robinson said. Paredes spoke as softly as he had done the other night while reciting his sensitive reaction to the cedar's gloomy atmosphere. Only now his voice wasn't groping. Call me a dreamer if you want, Mr. District Attorney, but I have given you the only answer. This man's soul has dwelt in two places. Robinson grinned. I'm going slow on calling anybody names, but I haven't forgotten that there's been another crime in this house. Howells was killed in that room, too. I would like to believe he could return as Mr. Blackburn has. Blackburn looked up. What's that? Who's Howells? And as Robinson told him of the second crime, he sank back in his chair again, whimpering from time to time. His fear was harder to watch. 
Might I suggest, Graham said, that Howells isn't out of the case yet? It would be worth looking into. By all means, Robinson agreed. Rawlins coughed apologetically. I asked him about that at the office. Howells was taken to his home in Boston today. The funeral's to be tomorrow. Then, Robinson said, we're confined for the present to this end of the case. The facts I have tell me that two murders have been committed in this house. It is still my first duty to convict the guilty man. Graham indicated the huddled, frightened figure in the chair. You are going against the evidence of your own eyes. I shall do what I can, Robinson said sternly. We buried one of those men this noon. His grandson, his niece, and those who saw him frequently swear it was this living being who has such a wound as the one that caused the death of that man. There is only one thing to do. See who we buried. The permits, Graham suggested. I shall telephone the judge, Robinson answered, and he can send them out, but I shan't wait for hours doing nothing. I am going to the grave at once. A waste of time, Paredes murmured. I don't understand, Silas Blackburn whined. You say the doors were locked. Then how could anybody have got in that room to be murdered? How did I get out? Robinson turned on Paredes angrily. I'm not through with you yet. Before I am, I'll get what I want from you. He stormed away to the telephone. No one spoke. The doctor's rumpled head was still bent over the back of Silas Blackburn's chair. The infused eyes didn't waver from the crimson stain and the healed wound, and Blackburn remained huddled among the cushions, his shoulders twitching. Paredes commenced gathering up his cards. Catherine watched him out of expressionless eyes. Graham walked to her side. Rawlins, as always phlegmatic, remained motionless, waiting for his superior. Bobby threw off his recent numbness. He realized the disturbing parallel in the actions of his grandfather and himself. He had come to the Cedars unconsciously, perhaps directed by an evil external influence on the night of the first murder. Now it appears the man he was accused of killing had also wandered under an unknown impulse that night. Was the same subtle control responsible in both cases? Was there at the Cedars a force that defied physical laws, moving its inhabitants like puppets for special aims of its own? Yet, he recalled, there was something here friendly to him. After the movement of Howell's body and the disappearance of the evidence, the return of Silas Blackburn stripped Robertson's threat of power and seemed to place the solution beyond the district attorney's trivial reach. The silence and the delay increased their weight upon the little group. Silas Blackburn, huddled in his chair, was grayer, more haggard than he had been at first. He appeared attentive to an expected summons. He seemed fighting the idea of going back. The proximity of Graham to Catherine quieted the turmoil of Bobby's thoughts. 
If he could only have foreseen this return, he would have listened to the whispered encouragement of the forest. Robinson reappeared. Anxiety had replaced the anger in the round face which, one felt, should always have been no more than good-natured. "'Jenkins will have to help,' he said. Silas Blackburn arose unsteadily. "'I'm coming with you. You're not going to leave me here. I won't stay here alone.' He should come by all means, Paredes said, in case anything should happen. The old man put his hands to his ears. You keep quiet. I'm not going back, I tell you. Bobby didn't want to hear any more. He went to the kitchen and called Jenkins. He let the butler go to the hall ahead of him in order that he might not have to witness this new greeting. But Jenkins' cry came back to him, and when he reached the hall he saw that the man's terror had not diminished. They went through the court and around the house to the stable where they found spades and shovels, their grim purpose holding them silent. They crossed the clearing and entered the pathway that had been freshly blazed that day for the passage of the men in black. The snow was quite deep. It still drifted down. It filled the woods with a wan, unnatural radiance. Without really illuminating the sooty masses of the trees, it made the night white. Silas Blackburn stumbled in the van with Paredes and Robinson. The doctor and Rollins followed. Graham was with Catherine behind them. Bobby walked last, fighting an instinct to linger, to avoid whatever they might find beneath the white blanket of the little intimate burial ground. Groom turned and spoke to Graham. Catherine waited for Bobby, and the white night closed swiftly about them, whispering until the shuffling of the others became inaudible. Was she glad of this solitude? Had she sought it? Her extraordinary request in that earlier solitude came to him, and he spoke of it while he tried to control his emotions, while he sought to mold the next few minutes reasonably and justly. Why did you tell me to make no attempt to find the guilty person? Because, she answered, you were too sure it was yourself. Why, Bobby, did you think I was the the woman in black. That has hurt me. I didn't mean to hurt you, he said, but there is something I must tell you now that may hurt you a little. And he explained how Graham had awakened him at the head of the stairs. You're right, he said. I was sure then it was myself, in spite of Howell's movement. It followed so neatly on the handkerchief and the footmarks but now he has come back, and it changes everything, so I can tell you. He couldn't be sure whether it was the cold, white loneliness through which they paced, or what he had just said that made her tremble. Perhaps I shouldn't have told you that. I am glad, she answered. You must never close your confidence to me again. Why have you done it these last few months? I want to know calculation died. Then you shall know. Through the white night his hands reached for her, found her, drew her close. The moment was too masterful for him to mold. He became, instead, 
plastic in its white and stealthy grasp i couldn't stay he said and see you give yourself to hartley she raised her hands to his shoulders he barely caught her whisper because of the sly communicativeness of the snow i am glad but why didn't you say so then the intoxication faded the enterprise ahead gave to their joy a fugitive quality moreover with her very surrender came to him a great misgiving but you and hartley i've watched it's been forced on me then you have misunderstood she answered you put me too completely out of your life after our quarrel that was about hartley you were too jealous but it was my fault hartley he asked spoke to you about that time yes and i told him he was a very dear friend and he was kind enough to accept that and not to go away his measure of the widening of the rift between them made her more precious because of its affectionate human quality she had been kinder to graham more mysterious about him to draw bobby back yet ever since his arrival at the cedars graham had assumed toward katherine an attitude scarcely to be limited by friendship he had done what he had in bobby's service clearly enough for her sake for a long time past indeed in speaking of her graham always seemed to discuss the woman he expected to marry you are quite sure he asked puzzled that hartley understood why do you ask he has shown how good a friend he is he has always made me think bobby said that he had your love you're sure he guessed that you cared for me in that place at that moment there was a tragic color to her coquetry i think everyone must have guessed it except you bobby he raised her head and touched her lips her lips were as cold as the caresses of the drifting snowflakes we must go on she sighed in his memory the chill of her kiss was bitter in the forest they could speak no more of love but bobby hand in hand with her as they hurried after the others received a new strength he saw as a condition to their happiness the unveiling of the mystery at the cedars he gathered his courage for that task he would not give way even before the memory of all that he had experienced even before the return of his grandfather even before the revelation towards which they walked and side by side with his determination grew shame for his former weakness it was comforting to realize that the causes for his weakness and his strength were identical the subdued murmur of voices reached them they saw among the indistinct masses of the trees restless patches of black katherine stumbled against one of the fallen stones they stood with the others in the burial ground close to the mound that had been made that day they haven't begun bobby whispered she freed her hand a white flame sprang across the mound the trees from formless masses took on individual shapes a row of cypresses on which the light gleamed were like somber sentinels guarding the dead 
The snow patches, clustered on their branches, were like funeral decorations pointing their morbid function. The light gave the overturned stones an illusion of striving to struggle from their white imprisonment. Robinson swung his lamp back to the mound. The snow isn't heavy, he said, and the ground isn't frozen. It oughtn't to take long. Silas Blackburn commenced to shake. It's a desecration of the dead. We have to know, Robinson said, who is buried in that grave. With a spade, Jenkins scraped the snow from the mound. Rollins joined him. They commenced to throw to one side, staining the white carpet, spadefuls of moist yellow earth. Their labor was rapid. Silas Blackburn watched with an unconquerable fascination. He continued to shake. I'm too cold. I'll never be warm again, he whined. If anything happens to me, Bobby, try to forget I've been hard and don't let them bury me. Suppose I should be buried alive. Suppose, Peretti said, you were buried alive today. He turned to Bobby and Catherine. That also is possible. You remember the old theories that have never been disproved of the disintegration of matter into its atoms? of its passage through solid substances, of its reforming in a far place? I wouldn't have to ask an East Indian that. Jenkins, standing in the excavation, broke into torrential speech. Mr. Robinson, I can't work with the light. It makes the stones seem to move. It throws too many shadows. I seem to see people behind you, and I'm afraid to look. Nothing aggressive survived in Rawlins' voice. We can work well enough without it, sir. Robinson snapped off the light. The darkness descended eagerly upon them. Above the noise of the spades, in the soft earth, Bobby heard indefinite stirrings. In the graveyard at such an hour, the supernatural legend of the cedars assumed an inescapable probability. Bobby wished for some way to stop the task on which they were engaged. He felt instinctively it would be better not to tamper with the mystery of Silas Blackburn's return. Bobby grew rigid. There it is again, Graham breathed. A low keening came from the thicket. It increased in power a trifle, then drifted into silence. It wasn't the wind. It was like the moaning Bobby had heard at the stagnant lake that afternoon, like the cries Graham and he had suffered in the old room. Seeming at first to come from a distance, it achieved a sense of intimacy. It was like an escape of sorrow from the dismantled tombs. Bobby turned to Catherine. He couldn't see her for the darkness. He reached out. She was not there. Catherine, he called softly. Her hand stole into his. He had been afraid that the forest had taken her. Under the reassurance of her hand clasp, he tried to make himself believe there was actually a woman nearby, if not Maria, someone who had a definite purpose there. Robinson flashed on his light. Old Blackburn whimpered. The cedars is at its tricks again. 
and there's nothing we can do. It was like a lost soul, Catherine sighed. It seemed to cry from this place. It must be traced, Bobby said. Then tell me its direction, certainly, Robinson challenged. We'd flounder in the thicket. A waste of time. Let us get through here. Hurry, Rollins. The light showed Bobby that the detective and Jenkins had nearly finished. He shrank from the first hard sound of metal against metal. It came. After a moment the light shone on the dull face of the casket, which was streaked with dirt. Jenkins rested on his spade. He groaned. It occurred to Bobby that the man couldn't have worked hard enough in this cold air to have started the perspiration that streamed down his wrinkled face. It would be a tough job to lift it out, Rawlins said. No need, Robinson answered. Get the soil away from the edges. He bent over, passing a screwdriver to the detective. Take off the top plate. That will let us see all we want. Jenkins climbed out. I shan't look. I don't dare look. Silas Blackburn touched Bobby's arm timidly. I've been a hard man, Bobby. He broke off, his bearded lips twitching. The grating of the screws tore through the silence. Rawlins glanced up. Lend a hand, somebody. Groom spoke hoarsely. It isn't too late to let the dead rest. Robinson gestured him away. Graham, Paredes, and he knelt in the snow and helped the detective raise the heavy lid. They placed it at the side of the grave. They all forced themselves to glance downward. Catherine screamed. Silas Blackburn leaned on Bobby's arm, shaking with gross, impossible sobs. Paredes shrugged his shoulders. The light wavered in Robinson's hand. They continued to stare. There was nothing else to do. The coffin was empty. End of Chapter 8 Section 2 Of The Abandoned Room